turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Lord's help, we will read through uh, verse 12. I think it's actually a typo in the bulletin. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. you're about to hear now is the very word of God. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it, was, so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star, the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And praise God for his holy word. Now, I'm a little struck by the fact that these wise men actually appear here in this story. I mean, why? If you know, you know your Christmas stories, uh, the one that gets the most attention, I think, is Luke's Gospel, because in Luke's Gospel, you'll see the angels come to the shepherds, uh, shepherds that are out in the f- with the fields by the flocks by night. I think it makes a little more sense, actually, because those shepherds are near to where Jesus was born. Uh, shepherds, that image is a very biblical image. Uh, shepherding was a very familiar type of occupation or trade in the biblical time and around Israel at that time. Why wise men? These men are not kings, as is commonly assumed. This is not we three kings of Orient are, like the popular Christmas hymn goes. In fact, if you look at the text again, it doesn't even say that there are three kings here. We don't know how many wise men there were. 
but we do know that they're probably not kinks. They're probably court officials of some kind, or even astrologers, and it says they come from the east. That probably would be Babylon, or maybe even Persia, which is modern-day Iran. And these are people that have this similar kind of role as Daniel, if you think of the book of Daniel. Daniel was like an advisor to the king. And so these wise men are probably uh, filling the same type of role. And they, they come from the east. We don't know exactly where that is. It's all a little bit mysterious to me. It's interesting that these are the first in Matthew's gospel to worship Jesus the king, aside from Jesus' own family, I guess. And they travel a long distance to worship him. But wouldn't it be something if today we had one of these wise men here and we could interview this wise man and get a little more of the backstory? I mean, how did you, you know, Mr. Wiseman, how did you get from wherever you came from all the way to Jerusalem and then to Bethlehem to find Jesus, the Christ? How did this happen? Imagine if we were to interview them, it would go something along the lines like this. I'd imagine they say, he'd say, well, you know, We've been studying the scriptures for a long time. For you know, These scriptures were given to us by Jewish neighbors of ours. And we read in these scriptures the promise of God's Messiah to come, a king who would defeat God's enemies, a king who would even welcome Gentiles like us to worship him and to be a part of God's covenant community. I mean, it says it right there in Isaiah chapter 60. If you remember those words, it says, The Lord will arise upon you. His glory will be seen upon you. And nations, meaning people like us, wise men, Gentiles, shall come to your light. Like the star that we saw leading us here. And kings to the brightness of your rising. I mean, that's what we read in the scriptures. We also read of God's promise for a Messiah, anointed king who would destroy God's enemies. And we've been searching for this sign ever since we've read of it in the scriptures. So you could imagine our excitement that night as we gazed in the sky and we saw this supernatural star, something we'd we'd never seen before. We're used to gazing at the sky and marking stars and other things. But this was like anything we've ever seen before. This was not some supernova. This was not some comet. This is what I imagine was like the Israelites saw in the wilderness as they traveled through, and there's the the God's glory cloud leading them through the wilderness. Something like that is what we saw in this star. It's almost like it was led on a string to lead us exactly where it wanted us to go. And while we were looking at it, you could remember, we could remember the promise in Numbers Chapter 24 that says, A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall arise out of Israel, and shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. That star that we saw, that's the sign of the Messiah, the King. That's what led us here. We believe. And now we're here to tell you, I'm here to tell you, to announce the birth of the king. This king who's worthy of all your worship. We've seen him. I imagine if we had a wise man here, 
and fill us in with a story, maybe something like that. This miraculous call from God, searching the scriptures, leading all the way to Bethlehem to announce the coming of the king. That's a testimony. That's these strange foreign wise men coming from a distant land to herald the king. But there are actually two kings on this scene, if you notice this in the text. As a true king and a false king, we see how people respond to the arrival as Jesus is king. And in this text, the writer, Matthew, through the Holy Spirit, is calling on you to hear that announcement of Jesus' birth and examine your own heart for your response. So friends, I think the main thing that we need to walk away with from this text today is simply this. The announcement of Christ's birth will either stir you to worship him as king or to selfishly defend your own kingdom. The announcement of Christ's birth will either stir you to worship him as king or to selfishly defend your own kingdom. So what's your response? What's your reaction? When these wise men appear on the scene and arrive in Jerusalem, they announce the arrival and then are immediately aware of a competition between two kings here. Matthew puts the issue right in the mouths of these wise men when they get to Jerusalem because they're asking the question, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? That's the question. This whole text is really answering that. Where is he who is born king of the Jews? That's what it says in verse 2. Who is the true king? And how are you going to respond to him? So notice first we have competing kings here. Competing kings. We see the first king that's introduced is actually Herod the king. Notice that again in verse 1. It says this, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod, the king. So Herod is a king, a type of king, but you need to know what type of king Herod is. Because we're going to be struck by the contrast between him and Jesus as king. Jesus as true king versus Herod as a pretend and pretentious king. Herod's not a very nice guy. You need to know that this is Herod who died in the year 4 B.C., And so Jesus is obviously born before that. Jesus would have been born in probably the year 6 or 5 B.C. This is not the same Herod in Acts 12 who killed James, the son of Zebedee, nor is it the same Herod who uh, put Paul on trial and Paul gave his defense in Acts 25. This Herod that we have here in Matthew 2 is actually their grandfather and great-grandfather. But Herod is a very self-conscious king, as many kings are. Uh, Because Herod is an Idumean. He's not a Jew. He's sort of a cousin. Idumeans are cousins of Jews. And so by birth, by blood, he's not a Jew. And his position, therefore, as king of the Jews is a political appointment. He doesn't descend from Jewish kings. Not like Jesus. Jesus descended from the kingly line of David. So Herod is always uh, concerned about his role as king. It's a political uh, appointment that he is always afraid he's going to lose. And so we see what Herod does in his own life. We know this from other historical records. Herod is known as a great builder. 
He likes to project his power. So he's building these massive building projects. He's building up the military. Herod built a lot of royal projects like fortresses and palaces and ports, including the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, all because he wants to make a name for himself. But Herod is also ruthlessly obsessed with power. He's notoriously cruel. He killed even several of his own sons to cement his own rule. He killed even his own wife. Herod had half of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, killed. He saw them as a threat. So this is a man who people would look at and fear. And if you look later in Matthew chapter 2, you'll see what kind of a king he is because he'll even have all the children ages 2 and under killed in the area around Bethlehem because he's afraid that they're a threat to his power. Herod's a dictator. He'll even murder innocent children to protect his own position. So when you take all that into account, and then you compare it with Jesus and his birth and Jesus' life and Jesus' rule as king, the contrast couldn't be much starker. Jesus, as Matthew will show us, is unlike any earthly king. I mean, where, is Je- where was Jesus born? In a, in a palace? Jesus was born in a manger, in a, in, a, in a stable. Jesus, what city was he born in? In Jerusalem, the political power center, the religious power center? No, he was born in this tiny town of Bethlehem. I mean, this is what Micah's prophecy is all about. Uh, Micah 5, verse 2, it's quoted here in Matthew chapter 2, verse 6. It says, O Bethlehem in the land of Judah, you're by no me- you are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. What Micah is saying there in that prophecy is, <coughs> Bethlehem is a really insignificant town, but from this insignificant town a great ruler is going to come, and that, of course, is Jesus' story. He's born in Bethlehem. God's going to use a seemingly insignificant thing to shame the powerful and strong. That's the kind of king Jesus is. Then you view the, uh, the accomplishments of Jesus' earthly life as king. Did Jesus build a lot of grand palaces, fortresses, conquer earthly armies? No. But he did conquer sin. And he did break down strongholds of sin. He did establish a rule in, in people's hearts. Was Jesus ruled by fear, by oppression, by cruelty, by selfishly guarding his own power? No. Throughout his whole life, Jesus shows himself to be a compassionate king, a merciful king. He feeds the hungry. He clothes the naked. Jesus heals the sick. He defends the weak. He gives rest to those who are burdened. Jesus finds and forgives lost sinners. He comforts the grieving. Jesus is the type of king who came not to be served, as so many kings are, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the type of king that Jesus is. So the question that Matthew is, I think, trying to put in front of us is, what kind of king would you rather have? What kind of king would you rather have in your life? A king who is ruthless and cruel, oppressive, enslaving you to do his will? 
Or would you rather have Jesus, a caring and compassionate king? One who says, take my yoke upon you, my my burden is light. A king who says, a bruised reed I will not break, a smoking flax I will not quench. Or Jesus who says, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. The king who doesn't murder innocent children, he blesses innocent children. What king would you rather have? My friends, we don't have a murderous king, Herod, ruling over us right now in our lives. A physical king like that. But all of us are serving some kind of master. All of us are worshiping some kind of Lord in our lives. You and I were made to worship. You and I exist to worship something. All of us were built by God to worship. We're built ultimately to worship him. And if we're not worshiping him, we're worshiping something else. And in our world today, what society is saying to you is that your self-worth and your happiness depends on having a better life that everyone else seems to have. Society around you says that your self-worth and happiness depend on money. Your self-worth and happiness depend on having a good apartment, having a good car, having a very prominent position at work or getting that next promotion. Society tells you that your self-worth and happiness depend on meeting all of the uh, great vacations that you see your friends take and post on social media or that going out to really nice restaurants when they post these photos online. You've got to keep up. You've got to, the only way you can be happy and feel worth, uh, worth anything is if you can project this sort of image to other people. But all it ends up doing is enslaving you. It's not evil to have money. It's not evil to have a nice apartment. It's not evil to have a nice car, to have nice vacations. But making those good things your ultimate things is only going to leave you anxious, depressed, envious, angry, resentful. You're made to worship something. But building your happiness and your self-worth on anything other than Jesus Christ is just going to leave you a wreck. That's where false worship leads you. False worship is putting yourself under a cruel and oppressive tyrant like King Herod. You'll never be fulfilled and your life is always going to be full of anxious, angry, depressed, envious thoughts. But if you're a Christian... If you're a Christian, Jesus is the only king who will not end up oppressing you or enslaving you. Friends, the gospel is that through Jesus Christ, there is hope for freedom from sinful oppression because you have a compassionate and caring king. Romans 6 says that if you're in Christ, you have been set free from the evil power of sin and become slaves of righteousness. If you're a Christian, you're the freest person of all because you serve a compassionate king. So which king is worthy of our worship? Which king deserves our devotion? 
Jesus Christ is the only compassionate king, and so he deserves all of our worship. You won't find any kinder king than King Jesus. So the wise men announce this arrival of Christ the king. We see contrasting kings or competing kings. We also see contrasting reactions to Jesus' birth and his coming. So I want to give you three reactions that we can see in this text to Jesus as king. And the first reaction I want you to notice here is the chief priests and scribes. We see this in verses 3 and through 6. Now Herod hears of wise men looking for a king, obviously not him, and he panics. And so he calls in these advisors to help locate where this possible threat is so he can snuff it out. Where is the Christ to be born? And so you can see that Herod, not being a Jew, uh, not knowing the scriptures, he needs other people to help him to see what do the scriptures say about where the Christ is to be born. And so in verse 4, he calls in the chief priests and scribes. And you know Herod himself needs the help. But these men, these scribes and priests, they're experts. They're experts in the scriptures, right? They study them religiously. These guys are like the Bible trivia champions. Um, they went to all the Sunday school classes as children. They know all of the all of the church hymns. They were at family worship every single night. They do their daily devotions every single day, and then some, you could say. So for them, it was no problem at all to answer Herod's question when when they go before him. In fact, for them, it's pretty elementary. I bet they could probably recall from the top of the, their heads from Scripture where. God's word says Jesus is to be born. So Herod asks them, where is the Christ to be born? They say, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, quoting Micah 5, verse 2. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. You see, that was easy, Herod. Let us know when you got a real stumper for us. Impressive? Do you think if people like that can just quote scripture off their heads and answer Herod's question? Not really. Why? What do these chief priests and scribes do with this knowledge? All of this learning that they have accumulated. They've learned that the Son of God, the Son of David, the long prophesied Messiah or Christ, has now finally come in the flesh. That a miracle of miracles has occurred. That God's appointed ruler who will bring true peace and justice to God's people. Now he's here on earth and he's just down the road. He's just a few miles away in Bethlehem. What did these learned religious people do? They react with indifference. That's their response to this incredible news. Indifference. Lack of concern, no no interest. So what? Their reaction to the news that the King of Kings and Lord of Lords is now here is not that important to them. They just stay in Jerusalem. They're more invested in other things. Unlike these Gentile wise men who come from miles and miles away, 
who have been searching diligently and follow God's careful leading in the supernatural star. These religious leaders, so prominent, won't even lift a sandal to walk down the road a little ways to see and encounter the Savior. You know what John the Baptist has to say about this just a little bit later? About this indifference towards Jesus and the gospel? John says of Jesus, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And that's an image of judgment that is coming to those who reject Jesus as king, being burned in unquenchable fire. In other words, indifference, <coughs> indifference to Jesus' coming is not a safe option, according to the Bible. Uh, J.C. Ryle once said, an Anglican bishop, he said, open sin may kill its thousands, but indifference and neglect of the gospel kill their tens of thousands. Crowds will find themselves in hell, not so much because they openly broke the Ten Commandments as because they paid no attention to the truth. Friends, the sad fact is, is that there are, the church is full of indifferent people to the gospel. There are churches full of religious people, people who grew up in the church, people who know their scriptures. They know all the facts about the Bible. They know in their head who Jesus is. They know their Sunday school classes. They know their church hymns. They did all their family worship. But none of that actually stirs them to go and worship Jesus with their, full, with their whole heart. None of that actually stirs them or motivates them to leave off the trivial things of the world and worship the Christ. There are plenty of people in the church who can recite the Apostles' Creed off the top of their head or questions and answers from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. But if you said to them, Jesus Christ is present with us, and invites us to go and worship him and hear from him today, from his word, they'll just say, sorry, uh, you know, I really need to catch up on some work today, can't make it. Or they'll say, ah, you know, sorry, my kid has another sports tournament this weekend, we're not going to be able to make it to church again this week. Or they say, ah, I'd hate to miss an opportunity to go on an exotic vacation this weekend. Or some may say, I'll just catch it later online. Friends, we live in a world and inhabit churches where people are indifferent towards Jesus Christ. Where the King of Kings is calling us to worship him, but where a thousand other things are ruling people's lives. And unfortunately, many churches are filled with indifferent people who are more concerned about their own kingdoms and pledging devotion to something other than Jesus. They might call themselves Christians, they're very religious, but they're not concerned with worshiping Christ. And so, friends, the announcement of Christ's birth will either stir you to worship him as king or to selfishly guard and defend your own kingdom. So ask yourself, as you look at these chief priests and scribes, what's my reaction to Christ's coming? 
But there's a second reaction here in this text that we need to see and dwell on a minute, and that is Herod's reaction of hostility. Hostility. Herod reacts with anger and with a plan of attack against Christ. Notice this in verse 3. It first says that Herod was troubled when he heard that there was another king. And then it says in verses 7 and 8, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now, of course, you need to know that Herod here is not being completely honest, right? It's not that he really wants to worship the Christ. He wants to kill him. It's a trick. It's a ruse. And we see that clearly later on in chapter 2 because he's going to kill all of these innocent babies in an attempt to kill the actual Christ who was born, his rival. Now, I think Herod's reaction here actually makes sense, unlike the chief priests and the scribes. Because Herod shows that he actually gets it. That Herod sees actually who Jesus is as the Christ. He is the child of God. He is the legitimate heir to the throne. He's the legitimate king who should be sitting on the throne and not Herod. And so the natural response is either I'm going to worship him or defend my own kingdom. That to me makes a little more sense. That Herod knows he can't have his own, he can't worship two kings. There can only be one in his life. Now, Herod is troubled for the right reasons because he is selfishly trying to guard his interests and he knows that Christ is a threat. The response of Herod, I think, and even the religious leaders, actually reveals the sin in our own hearts. Because without the Holy Spirit's work, the good news that Christ has come isn't good to us. And in our sinful nature, we're hostile to God. We're selfish. We're indifferent. Or worse, we try to dethrone God and make ourselves king. We actually selfishly cling onto our petty little fiefdoms. And anyone, including God, who gets in our way deserves to die. That's what our natural sin response um, is. If you truly grasp who Jesus is and what he's come to do, then you have to make a decision. Who is going to be king over your life? Are you going to welcome Jesus as king? Because if you stop and truly think about who Jesus is and what he means for your life, then you have to say, will I bend the knee to him? Will I submit to his commands? And if the answer is no, then Jesus logically becomes a threat to you. Now, Jesus is not just a nice guy to help you through life so you can build your own little kingdom. He's not just another moral teacher who's got some tips on how you can succeed in life. No, he's actually the king of kings and lord of lords. So you must choose whom you will serve, yourself or Christ. My friends, the Bible gives strong warnings against people like Herod who selfishly try to preserve their own little kingdoms. I think of Absalom, for example, David's son. Absalom tried to selfishly steal the throne from his father, David. And Absalom ended up hanging himself on a tree. Or think of, if you remember Naaman, who was afflicted with leprosy. Naaman was healed of his leprosy by Elijah, but then Naaman's servant, a man named Gehazi, 
tried to de- deceive Elijah and tried to steal a lot of clothes and, uh, um, um, and precious metals. But Gehazi ended up only inheriting Naaman's leprosy because of his sin. Or if you think of Haman in the book of Esther, uh, Haman tried to put to death Mordecai and the Jews because he wanted to enrich himself and grow his own political power. Selfishly guarding his own self, Haman actually ended up on the gallows that he built for Mordecai and was killed. Every person who selfishly seeks after their own kingdom is foolishly running after their own demise. And Herod is just another example of a long line of people who try to defend their own interests rather than worship the king. Friends, the announcement of Christ's birth is either going to stir you to worship him as king or selfishly defend your own kingdom. And what about you as you search your heart for the response? There's a third and final reaction we see in this text to Christ's birth. And that is the reaction from these wise men in verses 9 through 12. You can see very very clearly in the text how the wise men respond. Verse 11 tells us, Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. That's their reaction. That's their response to the coming of Christ is worship. The worship that he's due. Unlike these chief priests and scribes who are indifferent, unlike Herod who reacts with hostility, the wise men respond with worship. So in his commentary on on this passage, J.C. Ryle says that you see no greater faith in the entire Bible than these wise men and how they express faith here. Even the, the thief on the cross next to Jesus and that incredible faith that he had, he put his faith in a man who was convicted and sentenced to die on a cross He cries out to Jesus on the cross, Lord, have mercy on me. And prays, remember me and come into your kingdom. Even that's incredible faith to put your faith in a man who's dying next to you. But these wise men have even greater faith than that. Why? Well, first of all, because they have faith even before they see Jesus. Right? They hear of Jesus. They study the scriptures. The star appears and they believe. And the moment they set out on that journey is a sign of their faith. They're going to meet the Messiah, the Christ. That's incredible, to not even see Jesus and have faith. But then, even when they do arrive at the house where Jesus is, they worship him, not for what he's done, but because of just who he is. Think about it. Jesus is a little baby. He's probably several months old, maybe at most a year Uh, He hasn't done any miraculous things at this point, has he? He hasn't grown up into the man that he will be in the ministry, his earthly ministry of healing people and feeding people. And he hasn't, these wise men haven't even heard Jesus' incredible authoritative teaching yet. He's just a baby. And yet they worship him simply for who he is. That is incredible faith. They worship him not because he was born in a palace. He was born in a manger, something unremarkable. And that's not all. Matthew points out in verse 10 that these wise men 
display exemplary faith because of the gifts that they present to Jesus. Gold, precious metal, frankincense, which is like a resin or a, a very thick gel, you could say, a gum, very precious, expensive. And myrrh is a very valuable spice, bringing these incredibly valuable gifts. Now let me just say as a side note, this is why many people say there are three kings, because there are three types of gifts given here. I don't think that gives us any indication for the number of kings. But what it is showing is the incredible gift that they give to Jesus as a sign of their worship for who he is. And friends, I think we see a lesson in here that these gifts that these kings give are, they symbolize that Jesus is a king who's worthy of our greatest praise and our greatest worship. His wise men are a model of faith, faith in Jesus the king, that he deserves our worship, our most precious worship, not the leftovers, but the best that we have. He deserves our total submission and our total confidence and our total obedience. And so we, when we come to worship Jesus on the Lord's Day, we give him our best. It doesn't matter if we're worshiping in someone's house or in a business room, in a hotel banquet hall, whatever it is. Let's give Jesus our best in our worship, our full reverence, our full awe for who he is. Hearing from him, understanding his miraculous works, he deserves our greatest worship. That's the reaction that the wise men show us here. But there's one more thing I want to note before we conclude about these wise men and their faith. Do you notice how from start to finish in this passage with the wise men that they experience God's divine leading all the way through from beginning to end? From the moment that they leave the land that they come from, they see this star that leads them to Jerusalem and then leads them to Bethlehem, a supernatural miraculous leading to Jesus. And then at the very end here in verse 12, it talks about how they are warned in a dream, presumably through an angel, not to go back to Herod, but to go back to their home country another way. That's a divine leading of God as well, isn't it? I think it's meant to show us, all of us, when we come to Christ, we are led by God in a supernatural way. Maybe not with a star or a dream, But anytime the Holy Spirit works in someone's life to know Jesus, to see him for who he really is, and to be led to worship him, it can only happen through the Holy Spirit and God's divine leading. And so that's the incredible faith also that these wise men show of God's divine leading in their lives. Well, friends, through the Holy Spirit, Matthew is sharing with us a story of these wise men First of all, the point is to the fact that Jesus is the promised Christ. And he's the promised Christ to call people from all nations to cast their crowns before him and worship him. It's one of the main lessons we need to take away from this passage. That when we see these wise men come, they are actually Gentiles from a foreign land. It's a preview of what's going to happen later on in this gospel. It's a preview of what's going to happen later on in the New Testament as we see the gospel go out from Jerusalem to all the different nations and people being called in to know Jesus, not just Jews, but Gentiles as well. 
these wise men are a snippet, a snapshot of what's to come, that the good news of the gospel is of great joy for all the world, even for Gentile sinners. But also, I think Matthew is showing us here in this story to say to you today, if these wise men, these people that seem so far off from God, they were not God's, a part of God's covenant people, they were not from uh, the promised land, they're strange people from a strange place, if God can call them and lead them to Jesus, to worship Jesus, if they can relinquish their own power, their position, their pride, if they can present their glorious gifts to Jesus Christ and kneel before him as king, then why can't you? Don't ignore Jesus Christ and just think that having head knowledge is enough. And also don't selfishly protect your own puny and perishable kingdom like Herod. All earthly kings will be dust. All earthly kings become dust. Herod's grandsons are dust. Even Caesar Augustus, who was emperor of the whole Roman Roman empire at the time of Jesus' birth, even he is dust. As one person said, Caesar now is a salad dressing, but Jesus Christ is king. Jesus is the only king who is worthy of your worship. Does he sit on the throne of your heart? Have you repented of your sin and trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sin? Do you not only believe in him as Savior, but also submit to him and worship to him as Lord, the King of Kings? The announcement of Jesus' birth will either stir you to worship him as king or to selfishly defend your own kingdom. Examine your heart for your response. Welcome Jesus by worshiping him as king. Amen. Let's pray together.